You're listening. You're listening. You're listening. You're listening to Music Biz 101 and more. If you want to learn about the music industry and you don't know where to go, tune in to WP88.7. Brave new radio. We got managers, producers, record labels, concert promoters galore. Professor David Kirk Philp, alongside not Dr. Esteban Marconi. He is on assignment today, but I'm here with Jenna Vitale, the president of the Music and Entertainment Organization at the William Patterson University. Jenna, great to have you here today. Say hello to the folks. Hello, folks. I'm happy to be here. <laughs> it's so I'm so happy to have you here. And we also have a number of uh, students of the University of William Patterson who are interested in the music business who are hanging out with us today. And today we're going to have a really cool Zoom interview for you because we have Jameson Antoine with us. And Jameson is French, does not speak any English, so it's going to be a very difficult interview for all of us. But we think it'll be fun, and he'll mostly speak in cheese, but he is the VP of Global Customer Experience at the Warner Music Group. So Jameson, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for the spirited uh, introduction and welcome. Hello to everyone. I'm excited to be able to speak. Awesome. Awesome. And I love your American accent. So thank you for speaking down to us like that. What we're going to do, we're going to have Jenna start it out. She's going to ask you some questions and we're going to take it two parts. First, we're going to talk about Warner. Then we know you have a documentary that you're working on as well. So we're going to ease into that and talk about your doc. But Jenna, why don't you take it away? Awesome. So I'm going to start with a bit of a loaded question. So give us the best summary you could possibly have. But please tell us a little bit about your background and all of your music industry experience thus far. All right. I am uh, first and foremost, uh, just again, I like to start with gratitude with anything I do. So thank you for the opportunity to, to speak. Um, I am a, uh, a, a, a hip hop head, just that's, that's what my, you know, my passion is probably been in love with the genre since I was about seven, um, fell in love with it, uh, with a song by a uh, nucleus called jam on it, where they talked about, uh, Superman came to town to see who he could rock. He blew every way. Everybody felt uh, everybody he faced until he reached our block. And uh, as a seven-year-old kid hearing about somebody talk about Superman, I, I, I was like mesmerized by it. I remember asking, you know, my cousin, you know, what is this music? And he said, yo, it's rap, you know, it's, it's, it's hip hop. And it was, I was just smitten by it ever since then. So, um, you know, fast forward, I uh, went to the University of South Florida in Tampa. I grew up in, in Florida. I, I started out doing... Um, uh, street team promotions, you know, college college promotions. Uh, I, 
I um, worked at a uh, two of the local radio stations. I managed a record store. Um, you name it, anything to kind of engross and ingrain myself in the business and understand how it works. Um, I did. I did. I, like I said, I did promotions. I worked in radio. I moved to New York um, about a year after I graduated from college and managed a record store. And I worked on the uh, street team at Def Jam at night um, and uh, worked at the Virgin Megastore in Union Square in New York City during the day. Uh, just to make ends meet, and I and I had the opportunity from doing you know work I was doing on the street team, to uh, to go on tour with my favorite artist um, Jay Z, um, and from there I made sure that when I when I went on that tour I was gonna I was gonna do my very best to uh, impress somebody while I was out there on the road and traveling. Um, and working with different folks. So when I got back, I had the opportunity to uh, get off of the street team, which was, I was very happy with because uh, you don't really get paid <laughs> very much doing that at, at the time. Uh, this is 20 years ago. And uh, I, I, I got a role working in A&R administration. And then just to fast forward, since then I've worked in the uh, digital supply chain uh, at Universal Music Group. Um, I've worked, I've, I left the music industry and worked in um, advertising and in the SaaS business. And for the last, on on seven years, I've worked at uh, Warner Music Group, um, first leading campaign strategy, then email operations and both. And then I led um, customer experience, campaign strategy, email operations all at once. And then I moved into the uh, the role where I am today. So that's a, uh, there's a lot more in there that hopefully we'll get into, but that's as, as condensed as I can get, but I'm definitely a, a fan of music. And that's something that's just kept me motivated and propelled uh, up until, you know, through to today. Awesome. Thank you. I do want to go back a little bit. Um, you mentioned the street team. You were talking about it a bit. Can you explain what what a street team is in case anyone doesn't know and what you did on that street team and kind of how it helped you? Yeah. So I guess a, lo a long time ago, these are these are more prevalent. Um, the term, the phrase street team uh, originated with um, um, some guys out in, in California. And it's basically, you know, the, I guess the, the marketing term for it would be guerrilla, guerrilla marketing. It's, it's basically saying, we're going to get a group of people out there. We're going to get some posters. We're, gonna, we're at the time CDs or tapes, and we're going to hit the street and we're going to go let people know about, Hey, this new music that's out. We're going to let them know what the artist is doing and, and, and when things are coming out. And it, it really involved, a lot of guerrilla tactics. You're talking about plastering, you know, you know, buildings, putting up poster boards up on, you know, on on uh, kind of the lamp posts, just making sure that your artists had awareness and exposure. And those teams would get hired by record labels and promotional companies to do this work on their behalf. Um, and then this a gentleman by the name of uh, Steve Rifkin. Uh, who was a, a music executive and manager, uh, really started working with these guys in LA, started taking what they did and expanded it and created networks across the country. And he he named it, he he, he coined the term street teams because that's they were literally out in these different markets. And it became, especially for urban music, 
a or I, let me say for for black music for for hip hop and R and B artists a crucial way of uh, marketing and promoting the albums because they weren't always receiving the same type of push from the record companies. So they took to more um, uh, creative ways of getting the word out to people in, in local markets. And uh, so that's a little bit of a history of what the street team was. Um, and when I joined uh, in, in college, I was doing quasi college rep and also a street team person because I was working for different labels. I was just working for whoever would be paying me. Um, and um, that's that's what that was. It was a lot more prevalent when there was like physical, you know, physical items and labels were spending a lot more on posters and that kind of thing. And then as things evolved, they moved to, as you would imagine, digital street teams, right? So you're online, you're in the forums, you might be on Twitter or on Reddit or in these different places and using that as, um, as spaces to do the same thing, but just changing the, the, the kind of methodology, just letting people know about the album, talking about it. Um, and you could kind of say in a way it's uh, evolved into a bit of what, um, a, a bit of what uh, you know, what influencers do in a way in promoting in promoting music. I mean, we literally, in the same way that you might have a comedy skit, uh, and then it plays some music, and then people say music question mark, or uh, people are asking like, "Yo, what's the song that was in the skit?" Uh, we would uh, believe it or not, we used to walk around in my Dev Jam days with backpacks that basically had radios built into them. And we'd just be walking around the street playing this music um, or uh, literally playing the songs for people so that they knew or could beg, ask the question, yo, who is that? Or what, what is that? Or draw attention to ourselves to be able to start up a conversation. So that's what the street team was. It was very, very important. And it was very competitive because the, you know, the Bad Boy street team and the Def Jam street team or the Interscope street team would compete because they all had to make sure they got the word out for their artists around the country. So um, that's kind of a bit of a time machine uh, kind of marketing history uh, on the on what the street team is or was at the time. Awesome. Thank you for explaining that. I'm sure a lot of people know the digital street team, but myself included, I didn't know much about how street teams used to be, but that's awesome. <laughs> um, we are going to jump ahead just a little bit and skip a you have so much experience and I'm sure you could spend hours going through it all, but we're going to talk a little bit about your current role. So okay. right now you are a VP of global customer experience, correct? Yep. Can you explain what, um, what your day-to-day -day is, what the general responsibilities of your job are and maybe just, just what you do? Yeah. So cu customer, the idea around customer experience is that you're looking holistically at from start to finish, everything, every interaction with your fan or your customer from the time they, um, they first engage with your store all the way through to when they purchase and their post-purchase experience, right? So I'll, I'll back up a little bit. Our company sells or we, we, we provide recorded music, right? So people stream music, we, the artists get paid from that or the songwriters get paid from that. Um, the record company makes money from that. We have a publishing division. And then over the last, uh, say the last like 15, 10 to 15 years or so, 
um, companies started getting into doing what's called 360 deals and getting into direct to consumer um, uh, sales through e-commerce. So selling merchandise, hats, backpacks, t-shirts, that type of thing. So as you would imagine, as you're doing that online, um, any business has, uh, has to deal with, well, what happens if somebody wants to return an item? What happens if the t-shirt's not the right size? What happens if, what happens, right? What if? So you need to have a customer service team, right? Um, so traditionally, pe most people know what customer service is, right? It's like when something goes wrong, right? I got the wrong size. I, you know, I, you overcharged me. You did this thing. And we traditionally have had a customer service team, right? But when we think about customer experience, my vision for it is, is that you want to make sure that the customer has a good experience so that they never have to talk to a customer service person in the first place. So customer service here at Warner is, is this intersection between service, sales, marketing, production, our employee feedback, customer feedback. It's all of those different things to make sure that when you arrive, when Jenna arrives at our site and she goes to buy that 21 Pilots hoodie, or she goes to, you know, uh, Roddy Rich's site that everything is seamless and that it works as it should so that you don't have to write in and ask a question or you don't have a problem. Um, so day to day, um, I manage the group that looks after customer service, but we are also looking and working with other groups in the organization to make sure that, hey, you know, is the product description on that, on that, on that site for that store, is that accurate? Hey, um, little things like for our team in, in Europe, right? It's because it's, it's global. The way uh, folks in the UK and Europe write the date is a little reverse, right? It's, you know, it's, it, it, it's, it's flipped from the way we do it. So sometimes American customers are shopping on the European store and it says, oh, you know, uh, this was supposed to come out uh, April, you know, April 3rd, when really, they're really saying, no, it's Mar Mar March, March 4th, right? So we make little tweaks like that, where the customers are telling us, hey, this thing is frustrating or confused me, or I thought this. And then we funnel that information back to our designers and our UX folks to say, hey, let's just change this because a US customer might look at it this way or a European customer vice versa might look at the date this way. So it's a little thing of like going from writing the date as a numerical value to let's say, no, it is April 3rd, 2022. So little, little things like that is thinking about again, holistically, how do we create a really great experience for our customers so that they shop with us again? Um, because when we know when they shop with us again, they tend to spend more money um, and then that helps the artist that builds loyalty. So I hope that explains it, but yeah, it's the intersection between all of those different things. And that's my, my, my day to day. Yes, it definitely does. Um, thank you for that. I know I was, I was definitely a little just wondering what, because I guess um, there are some titles that we hear about a lot more than others. So it's nice to hear something different that is still super relevant in the music industry. Um, 
and I, I would I would say this that that role is it's very new here. It's not something that existed before. But in other industries, uh, if you McDonald's, Volkswagen, Disney, you know, outside of this vertical of music, customer experience is a larger practice. Uh, it's it's very new for in the music industry sense. Um, but because we're doing direct to consumer, and we're competing with you know, people could either buy a hoodie here or they could buy a hoodie from Amazon or at Target, right? We're competing for their share of wallet or their money. So it's not just the music industry anymore. It's really competing for, hey, what are you going to spend? What is Jenna going to spend her money on today, right? Is she going to go to the mall or is she going to shop on our store? So it's thinking about it that way. I just want to clarify something before. Did you say UX or did you say US before? I said, well, I did mention user experience. Okay. And I did mention the U, the, the U.S. But bef- what I, I did re- refer to what's called user experience, which is how the on-site, looking at the on-site experience. When people get to the website, do things make sense? Do they flow? Are the buttons rounded? The little psychological cues that, that make, again, the process very smooth, that you don't even you're not supposed to know and if you notice it it's a problem but um again there's a there's a there's uh people here that that handle that and that we that we work with but yes i said user experience let me bring up while we're talking about the letter x um the division that you're in of the warner music group it's wmx now this used to be warner music artist services right and it's been rebranded to warner music what does the x stand for is it like latin x is it No, Warner Warner Music Experience. And uh, again, a bit of a history lesson. Traditionally, the name name before that, the the group we were in before that was called WIA, and it stood for Warner Electra Atlantic. Uh, And it really served as a distribution arm for those three labels and our our groups uh, about 40, 40 years or so ago. Uh, someone, had, Jack Holtzman, uh, who was the founder of Electra Records, came together and said, you know what, we're all kind of using different services, the same services to, to do different things. We should come together, form a company that does distribution for all of us, and we could save money. So that served the purpose for 40 years. Uh, we have a new president that came on board about two years ago, and now that we're in this space where you're talking about NFTs and um, all this exciting stuff happening with Web3 and how things have evolved with labels and artists. Um, she felt that it was important for us to take a step back and rethink that we're not just a distribution company anymore. We provide experiences for our fans. I talked to you about direct to consumer. We still do distribution. Uh, we provide marketing services to the labels. So. That X stands for experience. And we thought that that was, um, you know, she thought that that was a more apropos name uh, considering the way that the business has evolved and the expectations from both artists and from customers. It's not just about buying a thing anymore. It's about what can I experience? What can I, what, what can you kind of bring me through? It's not just about the thing anymore. So that's, that's what the experience means. While we are on this topic of explaining things, um, I was reading your, um, job description on your LinkedIn and there were a few things that I would just like to clarify. I'm sure I'm hoping other people are confused, not just me. Um, but I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna read it and I would just 
ask for you to just explain it a little bit for us. Um, so one of them says mapping out customer escalation points with defined SLA for resolutions and minimizing wait times for customers. So mostly the SLA part, but if you could explain the whole title, whole responsibility. Yes. Uh, real, so real, real quick, it, it's just, it's, it's fancy talk for a, a service level agreement. It, it, it's really about, um, hey, uh, uh, David wrote in at five o'clock, how, just the setting and the expectation for how soon you're going to get back to, to David, right? You don't want people waiting two days, three days for um, a question that they have, right? So, that's a that's a term in the kind of on, on the service side where um, for and for any type of uh, business, whether it's in B2B or, or uh, D, direct to consumer, you're just setting the expectation that uh, if there's an issue, we're going to get back to you within a, 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 a stated time frame. And that's usually in the in the service level agreement. So uh, and when I talked about escalations, it's really about like, hey, there's uh there's small problems and big I, here I used I like to use the analogy there's the five dollar problems and then there's a hundred dollar problems right the hundred dollar two hundred dollar problems is what I need to know about right some of the 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 things that are a bit more minor I trust that folks on the team are able to handle and, and work through uh, but there's other things where you do need to escalate right if there's a big issue that's affecting uh, thousands of customers. Uh, we need to have a conversation about it, right? That needs to be escalated because it might involve talking to people in other departments and uh, might require more um, decisions from more senior people within the organization. So that's what, you know, that's what that is. Um, and uh, I think there was one other thing, but I've, I, I, I forgot what's in there, but it's just, just some jargon just to let folks know, hey, I know what I'm talking about on, you know, on, on, on this end of the, you know, of the business. Definitely. Um, one, one more, one more that I was a bit confused on. Um, so this one says monitoring net promoter score and CSAT or CSAT, I don't know, as yep. key performance indicators of organizational success. Yeah. So with, with, um, I, I uh, I'll say that in anything that in anything that you do um, that I could share, whether it's you know music or not, like you want to make sure that um, uh, what you're what you're doing. Usually, the thing that's measurable is the thing that 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 gets done, right? If something's not being measured or people aren't kind of looking at it, you can kind of tell that maybe it's not as important to folks. Uh, there's a saying by this guy, uh, I think it's uh, Peter Drucker. He's an old business consultant that what gets measured gets done. So the net promoter score is something that um, a guy from this uh, consulting company called Bain uh, came up with about maybe in about 2000, 2004, 2003, as a way to measure customer loyalty. So the net promoter score, you've seen it before. It's just, hey, on a scale of one to 10, how likely are you to shop here again, right? Um, and they use that as a way to measure, will you come back? If you remember what I said earlier, um, we want people to come back because we know if they come back, they tend to spend a little bit more. It builds loyalty. It's good for the business. It's good for the artists. So you kind of have to have a way of measuring, are we doing the things that are making people come back? So NPS or the net promoter score uh, 
to be brief about it, is just the measure of loyalty. Are people going to come back? Is Jenna going to come back and shop at the 21 Pilot store um, next Christmas or when she's going to the concert or the live stream? Is she going to wear it? That kind of thing. And then the CSAT just stands for customer satisfaction. Uh, you're looking to see you know, if people are satisfied uh, or if they're dissatisfied, it's an opportunity for to gain insights about how we can make things better. If you remember, I said we could funnel that back to other parts of the organization. Um, you know, these are these are little things that you you can kind of take for granted, but it helps our artists. And I'll tie it back to mute the music industry. It helps us tell our artists or their managers, hey, you know, when you do this, it if we set it up this way, it really confuses the fans. And we don't want to confuse the fans, right? We want them to be able to buy, buy things and get the merch as they want it. We want it to be a smooth experience. So again, all of that stuff is just uh, like fancy talk. It's just jargon to help us measure, basically, are we doing a good job or not, right? And if we're not, how do we get better? So what's interesting is you went from, you went from being a kid with basically a radio in your backpack, working on a street team, getting paid very little. All, but that was all about the music. And now you're in a, I want to say pretty much a completely different type of position that's more data driven and requires a lot more, uh, tell me if I'm wrong, more, more of the, uh, was that left side of the brain, you know, not the creative as much um, as more the, the quantitative, the analytical part. Can you explain? So from the, the kid walking around, hanging posters to, to where you are today, what, what got you to where you are today. I know you got your MBA, so maybe talk about why did you get your MBA? Why did you do the Harvard thing? Get into that a little bit. Yeah, listen, I've I've always been, um, and I don't mean this in a derogatory way, I've just always been somebody, you know, they would say you're a nerd, right? But I've, I've just always been somebody who is, um, uh, um, I like to learn. I've, I've always been interested in learning. I was I was really good at like even when I was like younger and we would be break dancing or in dance groups and that kind of thing. What I found myself being very good at was if we were in a in a group, I was good at organizing the other guys or the other girls or the the people we were with, right? So I was always very like, hey, we're gonna do this thing, or I'm gonna get my mom and we're gonna load everybody in my mom's Ford Escort and I'm gonna find out when the talent show is and. I was good at doing those things. Um, so all through school, uh, you know, I, I was involved in student government. Um, I, I went to school on a full scholarship. Uh, I, I, when I was in school, I went to school for advertising. Um, and um, so I always thought that I, not thought, but I've always, I've always been interested in, in, you know, in learning in the, uh, in, in, in business. I like, I just like business. I could talk to you about business all day, any kind of business. Uh, we could talk about healthcare and I would go into like what the business aspects of it are. So I just had the passion for music. And I say, well, if I love business and I love music, if I could get paid to do both, I mean, I, it's like the Holy grail. So, um, I, uh, I worked, like I said, I, I started off, uh, you know, doing the street team stuff, got into A&R administration, which was kind of the logistical side of the creative piece, right? Um, again, of being organized, it was booking the studios, managing the budgets, uh, doing that type of thing. Then I got into the uh, supply chain side of the business. So I've always been on the side where you kind of have to use a little bit of, um, 
of 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 you know organizational skills and data and that kind of thing and that's what i call it's not the sexy part of the business right it's not the thing you want to talk about at the party right you tell you tell a girl hey man yeah i you know i'm a metadata specialist <laughs> and you know in the supply this is like i gotta go to the bathroom right so it's not the sexy pieces but it was one of those things where i knew where i could excel and i i understood it so evolving from the Def Jam days, the street team for me was a means to an end. I was going to get into this business by hook or crook. If it meant running from the cops for putting up posters or falling asleep on a train and all this crazy stuff, I just felt hell bent on getting there. It wasn't like, man, I'm going to stay here. It was always like, this is a means to an end. Um, so if you look at from the time of like from Def Jam to my universal days it was about 10 years. And like I said, I was always very studious and I felt the itch of like, man, should I go to law school? Because I was noticing, man, you know what? Over these last 10 years, the ARs come and go. The marketing people come and go. Different people come and go. But I'd always look at the row of people who never left. And it was always the attorneys. Right. And uh, from working in AR administration, I would read I would read all the contracts. I'd read all the agreements. So and I would and I'm learning about the budget. So it was always about like data and very logical, making sense of these things that are very li like logical or illogical. Um, and I just felt compelled that, hey, I need I need to do more. You know, how do I continue to grow? Um, and I decided to go back and get my um, MBA in media management. Um, which allowed me to do something. It it's basically an entrepreneurial MBA, um, but it kept me close again to music, right? I didn't want to go off into pharmaceuticals or something like that. I just knew that uh, I, I wanted to keep my blade sharp. And, that, and that's something I want to kind of impart on the folks listening is don't get comfortable. I, I, I encourage you to always be learning, whether it's a class a little thing on LinkedIn learning or wherever, whatever, a book from other people. So I, you know, long story short, I went to get my MBA because I felt like I needed to be engaged intellectually. And I just wanted to make sure that I was adding on to my skill set and had these credentials. Um, then later on, uh, I, I took classes like Facebook Blueprint so I could make sure I was keeping up on social media. Uh, I took Twitter flight school. I took Google Analytics. Um, because I saw how the business was evolving. So uh, again, something to pay attention to. As you see the business evolve, you can't stay still. You know, people are talking about crypto and Web3 and all of that stuff. I've spent the last six to seven months just reading about everything that I can. Even though my day-to-day -day is not that, I know at some point it's going to be impacted by it. Um, I took the class at the Harvard Extension School which is on around strategic business management, because I knew I started saying, okay, I want to, I want to be a general manager at some point. I want to be a COO at some point. How do I get around? Not so much about the, the learning, but how do I get around other people who want to learn or who have those same aspirations? So the, the going to the Harvard extension school and the MBA stuff was more about um, raising the, my, my, uh, uh, my, my business IQ and being around other folks that could keep my blade sharp. So that's how I got to this point. And it was just an evolution of saying, hey, how do I pivot? How do I grow? Um, 
so I still use all of those things. You know, when, when I started, this, this is a long answer to your question, but I have to say, when I started on the street team at Def Jam, I remember going in and I had a cardigan on. I was just very proper, remember, and re real nerdy. And I would say, well, I have a marketing degree. You know, I have an advertising degree. And this guy named AV gave me a box of flyers. And he said, you can't do marketing unless you understand the streets. And he said, man, I need you to go to Queens and get busy. And to this day, that still applies because you can't do marketing unless you understand who your customers are. That's essentially what he was telling me. So even though you think of street teams as just handing out flyers, you're, un you're learning what people like, what people don't like. That's gathering qualitative data. It's just like a focus group. I still apply those same things today. We can't do service if we don't understand who the customers are. We, don't, we, we have to know the difference between the 21 Pilots fan or the Why Don't We fan and the Grateful Dead and Neil Young fan. So we're still understanding the streets, but the streets are in a different place, right? The streets is online, it's digital. Um, so that's how I tie those two things together. And that's why the education piece is so important to me. And I'm still, I'm taking a class right now um, to just, again, keep the blade sharp and continue to learn. That's the way to go. I mean, I'm, I'm very similar to you in that when my entry level, I went to college and got a music business degree. I thought I'd enter Polygram, which ended up buying Def Jam and then Universal World Polygram. But I, had, I thought I'm going to be making, you know, $75,000, $80,000. I think I told you the story because I went to college for it. And, you know, my entry level was $20,000 doing almost the same thing as you. I was an account service rep and I would go to record stores. I had my backpack I had po and I was just hanging posters all over New York City and northern New Jersey. And I did that for two and a half years. So you learn everything. Um, and that's the great thing about um, getting the formal education and then starting at the ground floor of something. You learn everything as you go. And it's really helpful. Yes. Yes. You've, you mentioned Web3 a couple of times. And that's something that is really starting to get more press and a lot more buzz about. Can you explain Web3, because everybody on the call may know a little bit or may have heard it, but they don't know what it is. So can you get into that just a little bit? Oh, wow. There's, there's probably a few different um, definitions of it, but I'll, I'll give you mine in the way I see it. This is Jameson's version, version of it in that I just see it as the evolution of the way we uh, transact, interact with each other on and offline, right? agnostic of saying that, oh, well, it's it's augmented reality or it's virtual reality or it's this or it's that. It, I, it's it's an evolution of, of, of again, how we're doing things today, right? Um, uh, and, and, and how we experience things. So there's a lot of talk about these virtual worlds and the metaverse, um, uh, whether you're in like kind of Oculus or in, you're in places like uh, the sa Sandbox or Decentraland or, you know, you name it or NFTs, um, the, the non-fungible tokens, that, that space. But that's, that's my definition of it. Um, it's, it's built on this idea of uh, blockchain technology, which is a, a kind of decentralized ledger. Just, you know, um, it, it, it's a couple, you know, it's building on a couple different things, but the idea is really around um, traditionally, things have been very centralized, right? You have a company, it has a hierarchy, um, and, it's, it, and it's controlled in a certain way. Uh, and the way things are going in Web3, I think there's still elements of that, 
right? There's still going to be a company or, or a group of people, small group of people that determine uh, how this, this virtual experience is going to look or what this um, project is going to look like. But um, there's a lot of exciting things around uh, this, this idea of Web3. Of, of, of web um, and it's something that I think people should read up on. I would recommend places like Blockworks or nonfungible.com to learn more about you know, that space, what's happening at a macro level, and all the way down to what's happening with uh, NFTs, whether it's music NFTs or um, uh, NFTs that are related to things like deeds. Like there was a house sold in, um, in Florida in Gulfport as an NFT uh, about a month ago, right? So there's all these different kind of use cases for what a non-fungible token could do um, that people are exploring and, and, and working on. So uh, that's my definition of it, um, but it, it's something that, that, that our company is definitely, um, you know, investing in and doing partnerships. I think within the last like two to three months, we've probably done a couple partnerships with um, the Sandbox, with uh, one of, with uh, we've done different things with like Roblox in the last couple years. So the organization is definitely investing in that space and trying to meet customers where they are, right? Trying to meet our fans where they are, where they might be in a few years uh, on, you know, online. Yeah, and I think what's important there is you're mentioning all these, you know, Roblox is not a music it's not a, a DSP, you know, a digital streaming platform where people are streaming music. Music is part of it. Video games, music is part of it. And I think one of the things that a big deal about Warner is Steve Cooper, who I think is the one of the big bosses of the Warner Music Group. He um, is the boss. <laughs> okay, so he is the big, the big dog there. When he was talking about the earnings, I think at the end of 2021, one of the things he talked about was this large percentage of the revenue that came in came from alternative sources, meaning not it didn't come in from licensing. It didn't come in from brand deals. It didn't come in strictly from recorded music streaming. Um, it came in from these alternative sources, like you mentioned that, you know, the Web3 stuff and the games, alternative reality. And he said it's um, it's just going to get bigger. And the, the percentage growth was huge. And it's just going to keep going. And I know you guys the Warner Music Group is very, and I'm friendly with Paul Sinclair, the GM of Atlantic, who's all about this stuff and looking at all, you know, looking years ahead at what you guys can do and where you can be positioned to take advantage of that. So the job you're doing sounds like it's right and where you want to go and what you want to do, it's right in that wheelhouse. Yeah, you you, you have to be, you know, it's it's something that I, I feel like all these different things at some point, um, it, whether it, it might feel a little disparate that it's 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 further away from you that it, it, it's something that's on the top of mind for managers and for artists uh, it's definitely something that people are experimenting with as fans um, so it's only a matter of time before it hits our doorstep you know I think last year Gucci they they sold a um, they sold a handbag uh for almost twice or double triple the cost of what the actual handbag costs in the store right um as a you know as a as an nft um so people are buying this uh digital merchandise or you know 
So it's only a matter of time before that's going to be a conversation in this space, because again, we're doing direct to consumer. We're not, we're not there now, but as you would imagine, if I'm, you know, in a metaverse space, you should be able to say, well, I should be able to sell the, the, the digital version of the 21 pilots hoodie or whatever insert X artist hoodie online, because there's an appetite, there's an appetite for that there is you know as well in the physical again is in the physical world and in this in the, in this virtual world so um it's it's really it's really exciting i think there's a lot of information flying around about what it is what it's not these different things and that, that's why it's like it's just good to kind of stay on top of it and read as much as you can and talk to other people about what it could be because it's it's being created as we as we as we speak you know so yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you look just over the last year, the growth, whether it's in discussion or in actual transactions uh, in NFTs and crypto overall, um, it, it's it's almost like a well, well, Web3. I remember when the Internet was really coming into its own in the mid 90s, mid to late 90s. And every day you would hear stories about AOL servers um uh, getting overloaded and you know breaking down because too many people were doing it, and that was like top of mind. And now it's the same thing with NFTs and crypto. So it's inter- we are in this new uh, version of it all. So just yeah. like said, keep up, keep up, keep up, or else you will be left behind. Yes. So while we're um, we should that was all left brain stuff. Let's get into the right brain of Jameson Antoine because I want to talk about the documentary that you're working on. So can you explain um, what this documentary is, if you have a working title for it, and then we can kind of get into the whole creation part of that over the next 10 minutes or so? Yeah, so um, like, like I said, um, you know, as if I don't have enough to do, uh, um, one of the things that like a lot of people have is just different passion projects. Uh, one of the cool things about being in the business is you'll find that there's people who playing bands, you know, uh, they have their day job and they're playing in a band at night or they're managing artists here or they're, they're creators, you know, themselves, uh, they have, they find other outlets. And, um, you know, uh, a friend of mine and I always just talk about music and business, right? Both hip hop heads, but we, again, both of us really enjoy the business of music and uh, just business, again, business in general. I could talk to you all day about all these different things. And, uh, we decided, hey, how do we, you know, maybe put these two things together? And we wanted to look specifically around um, uh, people that we saw, people that we looked up to kind of growing up around um, people who had started their own companies in the business, the things that they were able to achieve uh, over the past, you know, 50 or so years that, uh, you know, hip hop has been around. Um, so, you know, what we're doing is just speaking to um, uh, African-American entrepreneurs, their allies in the business, and the evolution of companies like uh, Philadelphia International, um, LaFace, Bad Boy, companies like Def Jam uh, that, you know, started off as very small niche uh, production companies um, or, or small labels or sidearms of, of these major companies um, and then became uh, big revenue drivers for many of them. Um, 
like Def Jam was for uh, Universal for a period of time, like uh, Rockefeller was then became for De Def Jam, um, or LaFace was for uh, Arista. And a lot of these, a lot of these labels came up in the 80s and the 90s, late 70s. Um, and it's really is just a way to pay uh, to pay homage to some of these men and women that created something out of nothing um, and helped to really fuel the industry into a billion dollar business. If you, you look at hip hop and R&B music, hip hop now, you know, the 18 to 34 year olds, it's the number one genre of music. It's a billion dollar um, business. Um, and it's pretty inexpensive to produce. Um, so it's highly profitable in terms of, you know, somebody could really make a song in their, in their, um, in their basement or in their bedroom today, put it on SoundCloud or one of the services. Um, and it's a huge song, you know, next week. Uh, and then they're doing a, you know, a big deal for it. So, um, you know, the documentary is about, is, is, is about that. Um, it's been a kind of a labor of love. Um, meeting and, and, and talking to different people. A lot of my heroes, people that I grew up, you know, listening to, whether it's Big Daddy Kane or um, Jazzy Jeff or uh, kind of some of the heads of some of the companies. Um, so that's been, you know, that's been really cool. And it's a, you know, just a, a you know, a side project that uh, has been fulfilling in a, in, from a creative standpoint, because you're having conversations with people that used to have on your wall, right? Like I used to have posters of some of these folks on the wall and it's it's pretty surreal um, to talk to them now as, a, as an executive, uh, but, you know, in my head, my, you know, my, you know, I'm, I'm exploding because I'm like, man, I'm talking to somebody that I've memorized all their lyrics. So I've, I'm, I'm talking to an executive who I've tried to emulate myself after. So you know, my partner and I have been working on that and it's been like a really dope experience for it. So uh, the title, I'm not going to say yet because it's still kind of a, a work, in, work in progress, but it is something that um, I hope that we'll, you know, be able to showcase soon, man, and come back and talk about. So talk about anybody here, anybody listening, interested, I want to make a documentary too. How do you even start? Where do you come up with financing? Where do you come up with you know, you have no background in film. So get into that whole kind of thing. Listen, if you remember what I, what I said about, you know, my attitude about the street team, um, and this is this this goes full circle about a lot of the people that we admire. Um, when you think about hip hop, uh, I think about somebody like uh, Grand Wizard Theodore. You know, his mom is yelling at him to turn down the music. He puts his hand on the record. The record the record does a little scratch and he's just like, oh, wait a minute, I like that, you know? And he and, he, and he's like, yo, I'm gonna turn this into something, you know? Um, I, I think of, you know, like Grandmaster Flash or uh, um, Cool Herc, uh, some of these early pioneers. I talked to uh, GJ Jazzy Jeff two weeks ago and he's talking about like, well, man, you know, my, my older brothers and sisters had a record player and um, my, my other friends had the records and, you know, you just start doing. I think the first step is, is uh, I, I always love this. Uh, there's this quote from Socrates where he says that for the things we must learn before we can do them, we learn by doing them. So if you ask me, well, how do you do a documentary? Well, you, you put pen and pad on paper, you know, you get your pen and pad or you open up your laptop, you start writing. 
Uh, I think now more than ever, you have access to information. You can Google, how do I write, do a documentary? You start getting your story idea down. If you have access uh, to a library, there's books at the library that tell you how to do it. If, if for ones that are still around, you could go to Amazon or Barnes and Noble. There's now guides that help you do it. And it's just a matter of just kind of starting. I think that's the biggest thing is, um, I, I remember the first interview that we did was a gentleman from, um, this guy started one of the first black music, he started the first black music division for CBS records back in 1971. And I read about him in a book. And I was just like, how am I gonna get in contact with this guy? What are the odds that this guy's even alive? You know, um, and I just found a way. I, I read a book. I found somebody that might know him, and then I found a website, and I was able to get in touch. And I sent an email, and about three weeks later, he wrote back, and I, I almost fell out of my chair. I was just like, "Wait a minute!" Like he he actually wrote me back, not like an assistant or something like that. So here's this executive from the '70s. He writes me back, and he's just like, "What's this about? What do you want to talk about?" You know. I explained it to him and uh, he's like, I'll talk to you, you know? And, you know, something where I just had a lot of trepidation about uh, turned into almost a three hour conversation. And then we went out to Los Angeles and we talked to him again and he, and he you know, he welcomed us into his um, kind of his compound. And, you know, he told us these stories about like uh, him signing the Chuck Brown band and the Chuck Brown band was later sampled by Nelly in Hot in Here. And he talked about licensing and, you know, so something that just started off by just doing. I just, I read the book, I did the research. I did some sleuthing and, and, and got in contact with somebody that could get in contact with them. And I just sent an email and I, and I started. And from there, that, that turned into another interview. And I said, hey, we just talked to this person. And then my partner reaches out to somebody and said, well, we just talked to this person. And then it just kind of snowballs because people see, well, man, well, if you talk to this person, this person, and this person, then maybe I should talk to you as well. So it's a kind of a psychological thing. So I would tell anybody with anything that you want to do, whether it's working in the business or just start doing. Uh, you want to be a recording engineer? Read up about it, start, start doing it. You wanna, you know, I talked to a young lady a week ago who was like, well, I wanna do marketing and I wanna do it for a big record label. And I said, well, uh, there's this quote from Sun Tzu in The Art of War that says, management of many is no different than management of few. If you can manage this small band and learn how they work and operate, and you can then manage a bigger band and learn how they work and operate, you can work your way up to managing the Metallicas, right? But you gotta understand how to, manage the, the the little guys first and then it, and then it evolves so um that's how i would answer that question man is just start it's not scientific it, the hardest thing is just write it down type something down in word put it in your evernote whatever it is that's the start of it and then build on it and just make sure that every single day you do something towards your end goal so when i worked on it when i wanted to get into business i was at the library I was trying to go up to the radio station. I was going up to people at the record stores every single day. Even I would talk to a janitor and I would tell them, hey man, I wanna work in the music business. I would talk to the person at the grocery store just, be, just to keep it at the top of mind that I wanna work in this business. 
Um, some people are like, dude, why'd you tell me that? Like, I, I don't care. <laughs> Other people were, hey, man, you know what? I got a friend who knows a friend that knows somebody. So I would just tell you, be very intentional. Um, start and don't worry about what other people say, you know, um, but you need to start and you need to go um, uh, and, and just start doing. That's right. I think we need to wrap it up with that because okay. that was that was the greatest, you know, a great way to um, kind of encapsulate everything. You know, um, this is very impressive because, uh, you know, you're quoting Socrates, you know, and then, you know, you're, ta you're talking about Chuck Brown, you know, so it's it's, it's really cool. Really cool. So we're going to have to do this again sometime in the future, um, especially when you're you know, much further along with the documentary. So we can talk about licensing in the music and budgeting and the fine details of that, because I think that would be really interesting. Jenna, do you have any final words or question that you would have before we wrap this up? I, I don't believe I do. I agree. I think that was a perfect way to end. So, Jameson, that's our way of saying you're the perfect human being. True. <laughs> And I would say the fuel, your fuel, your daily fuel is passion. And maybe add one more word or one more something about passion, because that's obviously the thing that's making you do this, you know, do the, both these things. So what, what do you have to say about that? And, and um, you're not being you're not afraid to, to fail. So talk about that for like 60 seconds. Yeah. Uh, um, passion, persistence, perseverance. I had a very a friend when I was very young who always used to say, Jameson, persevere. Uh, you think about all the people that came before you and what they had to endure and go through. Uh, the least you can do is try and, and keep going even in, in the little bit of adversity that you might face compared to what people before you went through. So I'd say persevere, passion and persistence. Those would be the, the, those three P's for me. All right. The three P's. And I think that's good because at this point, it probably many of our listeners need to go pee. So it <laughs> would be the fourth P that we haven't talked about. That was the elephant in the room. And if you've ever seen an elephant pee, it's not a pretty sight. No. So with that, we're going to edit. So Jenna, don't make that face. Don't make that face on the Zoom, Jenna. So with that in mind, do you know what we say, Jameson, at the end of every radio show? What's that? It is not hello because that would be silly. At the end of every show, and you may join in as you as you hear me doing it, and Jenna, you may too. At the end of every show, instead of hello, we say adios. Adios. I wish you didn't like John Mayer or pretend to care about what I say so much. Wish you never met your friends and heard from them. They said don't mess this up. Wish you never told my mom that boy I saw in side of the city how'd you make it so hard for a loaded gun take me out of my misery and curse your dark hair and green eyes you never planned on being mine you can imagine So curse your dark hair and green eyes You 
just admit